Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Story Box, where I, your host, Jay Phantom, has the utmost privilege and honor to unbox the amazing stories of some incredible people from all walks of life and experiences. I'm delighted and grateful that you're here today. Now let's dive into the Story Box and hear more about our guest today. This one is all about finding the right diet for you. And my next guest today is a profound, smart, and just all around genuine human being. Dr. Ian Smith is the author of 18 books, nine of them of which have been bestsellers uh, on the New York Times bestseller list, which if you are new to the show and don't know what exactly uh, New York Times bestseller lists are. It's like the epitome of the Oscars, okay? Like it is so hard to actually get on this list. But Dr. Uh, Smith has been on there nine times for his books such as Shred, The Revolutionary Diet, and Super Shred, The Big Results Diet, Blast the Sugar Out, The Clean 20, The Ancient Nine, and more books as well that I could mention. He is also the current. He is also the contributor and co-host of the nationally syndicated television show, The Rachel Ray Show. He's a former co-host of the Emmy Award-winning syndicated daytime talk show, The Doctors. He also served as a medical diet expert for six seasons on a WH1's high-rated Celebrity Fit Club, and is the creator and founder of the National health initiatives, the 50 million pound challenge and the makeover mile. Dr. Smith is the former medical correspondent for NBC News Network and for News Channel 4 in New York, where he filed reports for NBC Nightly News and the Today Show, as well as WNBC's various news broadcasts. He has appeared extensively on numerous broadcasts, including Oprah, uh, her show, the View, Dr. Oz, Steve Harvey, The Talk, Larry King Live, Anderson Cooper 360, CNN, MSNBC, and so many more. He's written for various publications, including Time, Newsweek, Men's Health, uh, Men's Fitness, and the New York Daily News. And he has been featured in several other publications, including People, uh, Red Book, Details Magazine, Essence, Ebony, Cosmopolitan, and Black Enterprise. He is also a highly sought-after speaker. He's been uh, on many different podcasts and, and shows, like I mentioned earlier, one of which and, the, and one of uh, the shows that I listen to, Ed Milet's show, 
And that's how I was able to connect with Dr. Smith through Ed Milet. So thank you so much for that uh, by listening to his show and just reaching out to Mr. Smith. And his work has been honored by several organizations, including the National Academy for Television Arts and Sciences for his coverage on the momentous events on September 11, 2001. I think we all remember that that time. He's also very active in charitable causes. Dr. Smith also served on the boards of the American Council on Exercise, the New York Mission Society, uh, the Prevent Cancer Foundation, the New York Council for Humanities, and the Maya Angelo Center for Health Equality. He's also a graduate from Harvard College and an AB and received a master's in science education at, from Teachers College of Columbia University. So he's highly educated, but this man and I dive deep into a lot of different stuff. We start off with his backstory, so how he actually uh, got into doing what he's doing. Uh, going into Harvard and why he chose Harvard specifically. So I guarantee you're going to love that story because it's quite interesting. Uh, and then finding the right diet for you. So we actually go through all of these diets that he's actually written about and, and why it's important to actually find the diet that is right for you. I know a lot of you right now would kind of be interested to know okay, which one is the right one because there's so many diets out there that people are talking about and dr smith you know there's a reason why he's been on the new york times best-selling list nine times for goodness sake i mean like he knows what he's talking about so with that being said my friends uh, i need you all to do me a favor and that is if you do get something out of this episode please share it around to your friends and family members pass this message message along uh you can be great. You can change someone's life today by sharing this story. Uh, please, if you do also get something out of it, leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. All the links will be in the show notes below for you. Uh, that Your support is greatly appreciated. You can also watch this full interview over on YouTube, so make sure that you go over there too um, and subscribe, and uh, that would be super, super helpful. So with that being said, my friends, Let's dive into the story box and hear Dr. Ian Smith's story. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm enjoying being with you. It's an absolute pleasure. Your bio actually goes a lot longer than what I read out. Um, if I had more time, I could go through the list, but you got so many achievements that is absolutely, honestly, incredible. You've written 15 books, I believe, or has that gone more than 15 now? Uh, 18. 18 books, and how many of them have been New York Times bestsellers? Nine of them at least. Nine books have been, and, and for those people, to put this into perspective, how hard is it, Doctor, to get as a New York Times bestseller? A New York Times bestseller in the world of books is like winning the Oscar. Yes. Uh, for books. It's very difficult. Uh, usually the same culprits win or yep. get on the list, right? Um, and so it's very, you know, we have different categories on the New York Times bestsellers list, but my category, which is advice, uh, bestsellers, how to and miscellaneous is very difficult, uh, to get on that list and to get on even once is like a crowning mo uh, achievement for someone's career. So I'm very blessed that, uh, my fans enjoy my work mm -hmm. and that I can continue to produce what they think is quality work. I think it's honestly amazing. Like all the things that you've been able to achieve. In, in your life as a doctor and you got so much wisdom 
And for those people that haven't heard you speak before or read any of your books, this guy knows exactly what he's talking about. I'll just say that from a personal experience, <laughs> someone that I honestly agree a lot with and his methods and, and the, the science behind it as well. Doctor, I have one question though that I love asking people to start things off and that is what does success look like to you? Great question. Success to me is when you feel like you've accomplished a mission. Mm. I'm a very goal-oriented person. And so I am constantly setting goals for myself, benchmarks, milestones. Success to me is when I feel like I've either accomplished something I set out to achieve or I've given it my all. Mm. That's very important because we also, we often talk about success in terms of metrics. How many baskets did you make? Um, how many books did you sell? How many tickets for your movie, uh, your sales? How, how, but, but that is only a small portion of success. I think the real success is you as an individual figuring out what you want to do, forming a plan, and then trying to bring that plan to fruition, trying to execute. And sometimes that plan does not get executed. But if you've tried and you've given it your all, that to me still is success. Mm. I love how you mentioned the goal aspect. Have you been able to, like all the goals that you've set for yourself in your life, have you been able to tick them all off and say, I've achieved them? I, if I, you know, I'm a numbers guy. If, if I had to put it numerically, I would probably say I've hit maybe 75%, mm. which is uh, three out of four, which I think ain't bad. Um, you know, some goals are very lofty. Uh, some goals are out of your own control, right? Some goals are predicated on circumstances. You know, for example, let's say I want to win an Oscar. Well, you know, I may not get the right vehicle. That means the right movie that is Oscar worthy, even though I'm a great actor. So you can be a great actor, but be in not the right film that is looked upon by the voters. And so you don't win the Oscar. So you can have a goal to win an Oscar and you can try to work as hard as you can and, and act the best that you can. But there are other circumstances that are involved that determine whether or not you get that trophy. Mm. What's been the biggest goal that you've set for yourself in your life? I think having kids and mm. being able to raise kids um, in a way that I want humans to behave. Um, and it sounds, it sounds colloquial to say that. It sounds cliche, but it's really trying to raise kids is difficult. It's not easy. Being a parent is not easy because you're trying to take these um, formative human beings who are a blank canvas and you're trying to paint on this canvas, but you're not trying to paint so much that it, the canvas runs out of room and they can't paint on it, right? Mm. They have to be able to paint on their canvas also. And so as a parent, you're trying to sculpt these kids, you're trying to nourish these minds and bodies, but you're trying to do it in a way so you also don't crowd out their ability to mm. decide who they are and how they want to define themselves and what their goals are in life. So mm. it's really a tricky balance. It's difficult. And um, listen, I say, I am always a work in progress in life. And when it comes to being a parent, I am constantly learning too. Sometimes I do things wrong, but it's not because I'm not trying. It's just because 
this is my first time at the rodeo when it comes to being a parent, right? Mm. Uh, but it goes well. I enjoy it. It's 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 challenging in a good way yeah. because it it makes you think about yourself. It makes you analyze yourself, but it also makes you challenge yourself to you know what next time that situation happens, I want to have more control. I want to be able to communicate the message in a way that will draw them in rather than repel them. So it's, it's a challenge and I, and I love a good challenge. So do I, I'm not a parent and I'm looking forward to the day when I do become a parent. I'm always curious with learning uh, from actual men and women that have got kids and, you know, I've learned from my parents and I've learned from others as well on the different lessons that you've learned while raising kids. So what have been some of the most impactful lessons that you've, you've learned to date so far? Well, I think that um, parents have to guide kids, mm. but they shouldn't force kids. You know, you know, we all see the world differently. And kids, even though they don't have your experience, they don't have your education or your, your intelligence, there are certain things that kids have to find their own path. Mm. And that's just the way it is. You can't totally script your children. That's been a big revelation for me. And you have to trust the process. Parents can be very protective, like, you know, oh my goodness, I'm worried, you know, if this happens and that happens and this happens. So let me try to control for all this. Mm. And that's not good. Sometimes you got to let a kid fail. Sometimes you got to let a kid, you know, run into the wall and make sure they don't get too hurt. But sometimes they have to hit the wall, right? They have to feel it. Um, And so I think a big lesson for me has been when to give my kids enough room to go out and do what they need to do and for them to take and build their own lessons rather than me always being didactic and saying to them, don't do this, don't do that, do this. You know, to some degree, you have to do that, but you also also have to give them room to figure some of this stuff out. Is that how your parents sort of raised you? And in a way, like they, they gave you a little bit of freedom to do the things that you wanted to do in your life? Well, I'm sure my kids are tired of me talking about how I was raised, but uh, uh, like, dad, you were just a perfect kid. No, I was very far from a perfect kid. But what I do tell them is, you know, I grew up with a single mom, so I didn't have a dad. So my mother was my mom and my dad and my grandfather was my dad. Mm. Um, But I didn't have that biological man in my house. And um, what was interesting is I was trying to tell them that my mother had to work three jobs. We, We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we were very poor in a materialistic sense, but we were very wealthy in the sense of understanding hard work, understanding the value of education, and having determination. I was a very determined and purposeful kid. And so I tell my kids, you know, when I was growing up, you know, my mother never set a curfew because we had kind of like an unwritten rule in my house. You go to school, you get A's, you don't get in trouble, you don't talk back to your teachers. You don't do something stupid to embarrass the family. And as long as you do all those things and you're responsible, she had no, we didn't didn't need a curfew because she knew that we were not going to be hanging out at two o'clock in the morning, you know, getting into trouble. That's just not the kind of kid. I say, we, I have a twin brother. That's not the kind of kids we were. You know what I mean? So my mother didn't have rules about the phone, when we couldn't use the phone, how long we use the phone. So I actually grew up in that sense in a very liberal environment because I was so studious and so determined and focused on the things 
that she deemed, and she was correct, were important. Be respectful, treat others with respect. So I did all those things. So she was like, okay, you handled this. I trust you to do what you need to do. And we did it. Mm. It sounds to me like you were brought up with the right kind of values from, from your mother, which is, sounds a little bit similar to how I was brought up in a sense. So I'm, I want to ask you, doctor, like, what did you actually want to be when you grew up, like initially? And, and how did like this path to becoming the doctor that you are today, how did that occur? Well, I always wanted to be a doctor, always, since I could remember. I loved biology as a kid. I was very curious. I was one of those kids that liked to dissect things and I would take little bugs and, you know, dissect them. And so I loved um, biology. And I was also, and, and still am, a very curious person. You answer one question, I got five more. And I just, because I like to learn. Yeah. And so I knew I wanted to be a doctor early on. Um, and my relationship with my pediatrician, my kid's doctor, um, was so great. And I thought, wow, how cool. Like, here's this guy I don't even know, really. But yet I look forward to seeing him every year and we have nice conversations. Like I felt like I could be open to this guy. Right. Um, and so that really put me on the path of wanting to become a physician. And then I was reading an article about um, in an Ebony magazine, which is an African-American magazine. I was reading about um, the paucity or the lack of black neurosurgeons in the country. So I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I wanted to be a black neurosurgeon. So I, since I was a young kid, I was lucky in the sense that I knew what I wanted, which made every, which made everything else easier. So I knew the kind of courses I wanted to take. I knew the kind of school I needed to go to. I, everything fell in place because I had direction earlier. But that being said, what's interesting is that can also be a curse, not just a blessing. The curse of it is sometimes you can be too myopic. And so you can only see in the tunnel that you've carved out for yourself. And so other opportunities could be coming and you don't see them because you have myopic vision, right? Yeah. And so luckily, luckily, I really avoided the tunnel vision. Even though I knew I wanted to be a doctor, I avoided the tunnel vision because I'll never forget, my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Milton said, you can be anything you want to be in life. Ian, you have what it takes to be anything. And I really remember that. I know it sounds cliche, but I remember her writing that in my little end of the school autograph book. And so even though I knew I wanted to be a doctor, there are other things I wanted to be in life. I wanted to be a writer, right? And write books. Um, I hope to be an actor one day, you know, and acting some things. I love, I love the acting process, not because I want to be famous. I'm not interested in that, but I love the process of going into character yeah. and exploring something that's outside of your own comfort zone. That to me is very, from a cerebral standpoint, that's very fascinating. So there's still things I I want to do, and I believe I can do, um, even though my initial calling was becoming a physician. Mm. And which school did you end up going to? This is fascinating. You, you went to a pretty high prestigious school. <laughs> yeah, I went to Harvard. Mm. Um, and uh, what's interesting, here's a quick little funny anecdote. You know, I grew up wanting to be a professional basketball player also. Wow. And so my interest in college was not how good the school was academically, it was how good it was athletically. Mm. And so Harvard was recruiting me academically. And I'd never heard of Harvard because the colleges I heard of were the good basketball schools, UNLV, Georgetown, Syracuse, St. John's. So, yeah, so I said, Harvard, like, ugh. so they would send me letters. I throw the letters into a garbage bag. <laughs> um, and uh, 
it wasn't until, and, and I was heavily recruited academically. I did very well in school. I took school very serious. So my brother and I, I keep mentioning him, but we, you know, we're twins. We literally had in our basement, maybe eight garbage bags of, of um, letters from schools recruiting us academically, eight garbage bags. And they were meaningless to us. We could care less. We cared about whether or not UNLV or Georgetown won these schools, right? So my uncle, who was a fourth grade teacher, came over to our house one day. My, my mother's brother came over to the house and said, what are all these bags? And she was like, oh, you know, they get these letters every day. Like they get three or four or five a day. And he starts looking through them and was like, holy cow. Like almost every college in the country has tried to recruit these kids. And there was a letter from Harvard. And we had just thrown it away just like you threw away a community college. I mean, it was... <laughs> so anyway, we ended up going to Harvard. We both went to Harvard. That's, that's hilarious. So what was the deciding factor for you guys both to go to Harvard? Well, it's interesting. Um, so my brother and I, when you're twins, you kind of divide the world up. Yeah. Uh, that's to, to form your own identity. And we're identical twins. So we really needed to carve the world. This is your world. This is my world. And so we had decided, the two of us, that I would go to Harvard because I wanted to become a doctor. And we realized that becoming a doctor, I'd have a better chance coming from a prestigious school like Harvard. And he wanted to be, he was more into basketball at the time. So we said, you'll go to a basketball school. So we agreed to split. You know, you have your place, I have my place. And then we went to a celebration dinner. Now, this is good parenting, by the way. This is what I mean by parenting. Mm. So we decided, the two of us, you go here, Ian goes to Harvard. We go to a celebration dinner for our dual acceptance into Harvard. And my mother and my uncle and aunt were at this fancy dinner, really fancy dinner. And they are talking to us about going to school. Mm. And in hindsight, they had a plan the whole time to convince my brother that there's no way he could turn down Harvard. But how they did it was not by saying, you must go to Harvard. They did it in this very slow, calculating, almost insidious way. Mm -hmm. So by the end of the dinner, we're both going to Harvard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, that was good parenting, you mm -hmm. know, particularly for an African-American boy to have the opportunity to go to school, to the best school in the country and to turn that down because you have this dream of, of going to, um, sorry, because you have this dream of playing in the NBA, mm. you know, um, that's good parenting, yeah. right? Um, some parents, some parents would have said, you want to play professional basketball, go to a school that is lower academically. My mother said, uh-uh, you're going to the best school possible. Wow. And what did your brother end up doing? So he went to Harvard and he is actually a screenwriter. Uh -huh. uh, he lives in LA. So he's a screenwriter. Um, and so he's in the same kind of field. Um, I, I have different fields, but we, he, we share that. Uh, he also right. is a gar, yeah, he's a garmental too. So he makes, he manufactures clothing. Wow. So what sort of, um, screenplay, sorry to go off, off track. Cause I'm a yeah. filmmaker as well. So I'm curious about the writing aspect of things. Uh, what sort of film, film scripts has he written? So it's great. He sold a long time ago. He sold a screenplay that was going to star Halle Berry. Oh, wow. And 
um, it was a big break for him. He, geez, he couldn't have been more than you're 23. He couldn't have been more than 26 young and everything was all set up. And then the production company that purchased the screenplay, um, got bought out. And so the, so the script went into what's called turnaround, which means that the producers were figuring out what they're going to do with it. And so the project never happened. Now that's a common story in Hollywood. We didn't know it at the time. So it was really damaging to him psychologically because he had this huge deal, this big star, and then it got lost. So he kind of took a lot of time off. And now he um, has a big project, knock on wood, Mm -hmm. that is getting a lot of attention. And hopefully in the next year, he'll announce this big, it's kind of like a, uh, a bi- biopic um, about this famous rap figure. Ah, I'm excited now. <laughs> that's Good. that's awesome. Well, um, look, really look forward to that. So going back to your story a little bit, you've mm-hmm. graduated from Harvard. Now you're out in the big wide world. What did you end up doing? How did you get your start? Sorry, everyone, to disturb you from listening to our amazing guest story so far. But I wanted to butt in here and let you guys know that I have started a YouTube channel for the Storybox podcast where you can watch pretty much all of the interviews that I've done so far with some amazing guests over on YouTube. So you can just search up the Storybox podcast or you can click the link below uh, in, in the show notes to actually go to the channel and watch all the amazing content that I have put out there for you guys uh, with some amazing guests on there. You got Grant Cardone, you got doctors on there, you got you know, so much amazing content, actors, stunt doubles, everything that you guys would want or need, it is there for you. Small bite-sized chunks, golden nuggets, you name it, that is going to be very beneficial for you. So if you do want to subscribe, it's that option is there for you. Really appreciate your time and your support. I apologize for the interruption, but let's get back into the story box and continue hearing our guest story today. So after Harvard, I went and got my master's at Columbia University in New York. Um, yeah, which is a great school. It's an Ivy school. It's a great school also. I got my master's in science education. And the funny thing is, and I can tell it now, I really went to do it, even though I love education, I really went to do it because I wanted a gap year between college and medical school. I knew I was still going to go to medical school, but I didn't want to go right away. And a friend of mine in college, when we were seniors, we were in the library and uh, just outside the yard. And he says to me, uh, hey, did you see this? And it was Columbia had a, a, a brochure about getting a master's in education at Columbia. And the attraction to me was I'd be in New York for a year. So and I told you, New York's my favorite city. So I was like, oh, my goodness, this is a great excuse to be in New York. And I can sell it to my mother that I'm getting my master's. So I need to be in New York when really... I wanted to be in the city. That was a lifelong dream of mine because I grew up about an hour and a half out of the city and New York. And I used to hear New York on the radio. I would hear, I, we, we were close enough to be able to get the New York stations and you could hear the city come through the radio. You could hear, you know, the politics and the street closings and the fires and all the stuff that happens in a big metropolis. And I was like, oh, I want to go here so badly. So anyway, I took a year, got my master's, supposed to be two years. Mm-hmm. And um, when I got there, they said, you can't do this program in one year. And I was saying to myself, I didn't tell them this. I have to do it because I'm going to med school next year. <laughs> but I didn't want to tell them that. And my advisor said, I've never seen anyone. I'll never, I've never seen anyone do this in two years. You're going to kill yourself. And uh, I did it in one year. Wow. And then I got into medical school. 
Um, I went to Dartmouth Medical School up in New Hampshire uh, for two years. Then I did my last two years in Chicago at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. That's amazing. Like I can, my grandfather did a three-year managerial course in three months. He, he suffered a heart attack. That was, I think that was around my age when he did it. So he suffered a heart attack pretty young. And while he was doing it? While he was, oh, he finished it and then he suffered the heart attack after. But then wow. he recovered from it. But then he's like, I did a three-year managerial course in three months because he just didn't want to waste any time. He's, he's very much like me in that, in that sense. Like I, when I have something I want to do, I will not waste time. Like I will go and, and work my absolute butt off. Like I did a, a six-month real estate course in two days. Like, oh, wow. and, and I, and I passed with flying colors. Like that's the sort of person that I am always did my assignments weeks in advance. Everyone thought I was crazy and nuts, but I was just like, well, I want to do other things. Like I do the very yeah. best of my ability for this, but you know, what's stopping me <laughs> He's the only wow. person I like, don't, don't put limitations on me is pretty much what I was getting at. And it sounds like you've got a similar mindset with what, what you do. You know, what I try to tell people, like on my Instagram page, um, and for those who are watching, my Instagram is at Dr. Ian Smith, spell the doctor out, I-A-N Smith, and my Twitter is D-R Ian Smith. But I try to really encourage and inspire people um, that they, and empower them to believe that they can exceed other people's expectations and that the real expectations they should be following are their own. Mm. Right. Like, like you said, you did a six months in two days. I did two years in a year, which is not as great as you, but the whole point is I've always lived my life, not by the restrictions and the mandates of others, yeah. but I've created it for myself. Sometimes they're unrealistic, right? Sometimes they don't make sense. But the point is that, I was in control and I said it yeah. and I'm okay with it. Even though I set the bar really high and what it takes to reach there is a lot. I'm okay with it because I set the bar yeah. versus you setting the bar for me. Yeah. So it's, it's a different mindset. Mm. I love that. I love that mindset. Cause my, my grandfather used to tell me when I was eight years old, we're in his work sh workshop. And I said to him, all I wanted to do was go sit on the couch, drink pub squash and eat junk food and watch Cartoon Network. That's all I wanted to do. My grandfather was trying to teach me something, how to make uh, something from wood, and I, I was not good with my hands. So I'm like, uh, Grandy, can, can we just do this tomorrow? And he stops. He literally looks at me directly in the eyes, and he says, don't ever say that to me again. He says, this saying that I'll never forget, is like, don't put off for tomorrow what can be done today. If you keep putting things off tomorrow, he's like, you're going to be lazy, He's like, you're never going to get anything done. And the person that puts things consistently puts things off tomorrow is just not going to get anywhere in life. So he said, if you want to get somewhere in life, Jay, do the work now. You've got time. But you know what? A lot of people will say to me, hey, Dr. Ian, I want to write a book. Everybody wants to write a book. And they say, what's the best advice you could give me? Mm. And I say, the best advice is to finish it. <laughs> it's to finish it. People start writing and they get halfway through or quarter way through and they don't finish. You have to be a finisher. Mm. And I think one of my greatest traits or one of the greatest attributes to my success is I'm a finisher. 
whether the end product is great or not, you have to finish the product in order to be able to improve it and enhance it and to have something, right? And so I think too many people don't finish and they get distracted and they move on to something else. Mm. So they do half of this, half of that. And before you know it, you have all these incomplete projects out there and you got to finish one or two at a time and move on to the next thing. And so I really am a big believer that if you want to succeed in life, you have to finish Mm. uh, and you have to get through it. You got to work through your process to get it done. Mm. And it sounds simple. I know it's not simple, but you need to get it done. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, I totally agree with you on that. And I, I preach it as well. Same thing. Same deal. And I have a saying that goes along with that, which is be persistent to remain consistent at the things mm. you want. So consistency is, or being persistent is like the flow on effect of consistency. Oh no, sorry. Consistency is the flow on effect of being persistent. Mm-hmm. So yes. if, I, if I keep telling myself, uh, I'll do it tomorrow, then I'm not being persistent enough. I need to just keep doing it do the very best that I possibly can and then watch what's going to happen. Like you're creating flow in your life yes. is the consistency aspect. And yes, that's what I've been able to do. Like at the moment I'm in the process of writing my own book with my own life. And that's hard. It, no one ever says it's going to be easy. Like, <laughs> seriously. And I suck at grammar. So I'm like, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's difficult, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to not finish. You know, can I give you, let me give you a a quick bit of advice. And everyone has advice for you. The best advice I can give you is two things. One, writers write, which means you have to write something every day, whether it's a paragraph or a page or two pages every day, write something that's going to bring you closer to your goal. And the second part of it is don't over edit yourself. Don't sit there and write four paragraphs and then go back and read through the four paragraphs. Don't do that. Because you end up, you, you'll never totally be satisfied mm. with what you've written. You'll always find a way. Even now, I'll go to a book of mine. Like this book is coming out um, October 1st. It's a novel, right? I write fiction and novels now. Wow. So The Unspoken is coming out on October 1st on Amazon. But what I'll do is I'll go and start reading this. Like, oh, geez. <laughs> Why didn't I say it this way? Right? <laughs> so even when it's finished, like this is finished, you're still going to find a different way you could have said or carried out a plot or whatever. So yeah. don't do that. Get it written. Now, at the end of the night, if you want to review what you've written, you have a few minutes, you can do that. But the next day, you got to keep moving. You can't sit there and keep editing the same material you've written. Mm. That's my, my two cents to you. Thank you for telling me that. I needed to hear that. Because <laughs> I have a habit, it's a bad, bad habit of going over things and re-editing them because of the perfectionistic nature of me. So there you go. I need, I needed to hear that. Um, Dr. Smith, I am mindful of your time. So I do want to ask you a few more questions regarding yeah. health and the things that you do, uh, currently. So you write a lot of books, but you write a lot of books that revolve around health aspects and, and diets and quitting sugars and, and all that sort of stuff. So was that something that you you studied in university to help you or has life experience taught you otherwise? I like how I can always tell where someone's from by your phraseology. Like you said, <laughs> that's something you studied in university. Like we would say, is that something you studied while you were in college? Mm. Uh, 
but uh, anyway, I just like that. Um, I told you I love to travel the world. I love the world. I love people from different worlds. Um, it's interesting. So when I was in medical school, there was no nutrition. There were no classes on food, weight loss, nutrition, none. Um, mm-hmm. Because they didn't believe that it was important, an important part of a physician's education. And I was writing a column for Time Magazine. You ever heard Time Magazine? Yes, I have. Yeah. yeah. So I was, I'm saying that, I don't mean to be, because you're young. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know. I know, I know all time, the magazines. I hope to one uh, day be in them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was in Time Magazine. I had my own column. Wow. And what was happening was I would write a column in the, what they call the back of the book. So towards the end, me, my picture and everything. And I would write on topics like, uh, let's say there, there was a Tylenol scare, like at the time, a medication scare. And I would write about it or I'd write about the flu. But mm-hmm. all my questions and emails were about food, nutrition, weight loss, fat burners, metabolic boosters. So no matter what I wrote about, 80% of my email box was full of those questions. So I was like, geez, like I, I got to figure this thing out for these people because I always view my role in public from health as being a service to people. Like I try to take complicated things or things that are important to your livelihood and I try to break it down for you so you can take that nugget of wisdom and, and apply it to your life right away. Mm-hmm. So here I am reading all these emails asking me about things that I had no training in, zero. And so it was frustrating because I felt like I was misconnecting with these guys. I was writing about this. They wanted this. So I got an email um, one day from Random House, a big publishing house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, hey, Dr. Ian, would you like to write any books? I was like, geez, yeah, of course I'd love to write books. Um, and so I met with the editor uh, and Mary said to me, I said, what do you want me to write? Anything you want. We love your column. Give us some ideas. And one of the books, one of the first books I wanted to write was a book about nutrition mm. because I felt like I would be able to answer all of the questions and uncertainties that my readers had. And so I, of course, had to teach myself real fast about nutrition. Now it's not hard. Once you're a physician and you spent all these hours and years in school, Mm. you know, science comes pretty easily to you, but it was a different science. I had to learn about what's a calorie and what are phytonutrients and all these different things uh, that are part of nutrition. But anyway, that's what I did. And I wrote my first, it was my second book. My first book was a website book, but the second book I wrote was called The Take Control Diet. And that was my answer to all the emails I was getting consistently at the magazine about how to eat properly and lose weight. Mm. So this idea of, of diets, and it's such a fascinating topic for a lot of people because there are so many diets out there, the crazy, crazy amount. There's no one diet that is the best. And I've always been curious about this aspect. Why is that the case? Great question. And I have always said to people, listen, I've written, I don't know how many diets I've written, honestly. I've written 18 books, but maybe let's say 13 are diets, right? Mm-hmm. I got another one coming out in April called Fast Burn, which is going to be a lot of fun. You're but <laughs> Yeah, literally. But I've always said to people, no one diet, no matter how good it is, fits everybody because people have different ways they gain weight. Mm-hmm. People have different tolerances to food. They have different preferences for food. 
Some people have medical conditions. They can't have too much salt. They can't have too much sodium. There's no, no one can create a program that works for everyone equally effective, right? So I say thousands, hundreds of thousands, actually up to millions of people have followed my plans, okay? Mm. And despite the fact that I have millions of people on my plan, my plan still isn't for everybody because mm. you may pick it up and say, you know what? This doesn't work for me. And so people say to me, well, Dr. Ian, why do you write so many different diet books? And the answer is your question, because no one book is going to satisfy the needs of everybody. So I'm constantly researching, listening, learning, trying to figure out what's new out there. Is there a different way? So now intermittent fasting is, is huge, right? Yep. And then clean eating has been big the last couple of years. So I was like, geez, what about combining clean eating, which by itself is very effective, mm. with intermittent fasting? which by itself is very effective. So put, them, put the two together. So I wrote my late, latest book, Clean and Lean, which is the principles of intermittent fasting and clean eating. And the results are amazing, like 10 to 12 pounds in 30 days on average for people, right? But it's not because I'm some genius. It's because different programs affect people in a different way. And I try to figure out different ways to approach the same problem, which is how do you eat better and lose weight? Mm. So what's the diet that works best for you that you've been following or has that diet changed over time as you've gotten older? Well, what's interesting is I've been very blessed. Um, and I'm, I publicly said this, I have been hypermetabolic my whole life, which means oh, yes. my metabolism just naturally is just through the roof. It is mm. just like some guys are born seven feet, right? Yep. They're just blessed. That's just genes. So but the other part of it is I've also been a sportsman my entire life. I love sports since I was a kid. And even now I play everything. And so the combination of me being hypermetabolic, me being a sportsman, and I love to work out. And if you look at my Instagram, you'll see all my workout stuff. But, but that combination has made me not needing to lose weight or not needing a rigid program. However, that being said, I still stick by a lot of the principles. I try to have, you know, half of my plate, fruits and vegetables in color. I don't eat a lot of fried foods. Uh, I don't eat a lot of salt. I don't ever drink soda. I haven't had soda since I was probably 17. Yeah, so another one. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> soda. Yeah, so, so I don't have a rigid plan, but the choices I make all fall within the guidelines of, because here's the deal, by the way. It's not necessarily that you take drastic steps it's that you take small steps, a small step here, a small step here, and those small steps added together give you big, big results. So I would say small changes yield big results. Mm. You got to add those small changes up. So I'm, I'm curious about the, the kind of foods that you eat on, on a daily yeah. basis, like and how so, many calories you intake. All yeah. That stuff. So I eat everything. Yeah. I'm an omnivore. <laughs> <laughs> I love meat. I love fish. I love fruits. I love vegetables. <clears throat> However, what I don't do is I do not, I don't um, overdo it. Like I eat a lot of fish. I love salmon, for example. I eat steak, but I don't have three steaks in a week, mm. right? Sometimes I like a fried pork chop, mm. but I may have a fried pork chop once every couple of months, mm. right? So I do eat things that aren't considered to be the healthiest of things. 
but the frequency and the volume I consume them are so small. So mostly I'll be eating fish, uh, vegetables, uh, rice. Um, these are kind, you know, and so I eat healthy, you know, so I don't, I'm luck. I'm also lucky, you know, knock on wood. I'm lucky because I don't need to lose weight. I just don't right yeah. now. If I were to lose weight, if I had to choose one of my plans to lose weight on, I would choose clean and lean because number one, the foods are regular, good foods are tasty foods. They're not diet foods. And also because I believe intermittent fasting is extremely effective, not just for weight loss, but for other things, helps with your mentality, helps with asthma symptoms. I don't have asthma, but it, it helps belly fat. It's, it has shown intermittent fasting to help with all kinds of things. Mm. And so um, that's what I would be doing. If I were following a plan to lose weight, I would do clean and lean. But in general, I eat everything almost in moderation. I love the uh, intermittent fasting. I've been doing that for three, four years now. And wow. I absolutely love it. Like my brain, for some reason, each and every time that I eat food in the morning before I get on with my day, if it's like, say, eight, nine o'clock in the morning and I've, I haven't eaten, my brain actually works better on an empty stomach than it does on a full stomach. Like I can't exercise on a full stomach. I just can't. It just, sure. it makes me feel more lethargic. You know how people always say, you know, eat before you work out. doesn't work for me. I, yeah. I, I'm better when I haven't eaten for a couple of hours or say eight, nine hours. I get up at four o'clock in the morning. I'm outside running and then do my workout, get home. I'm still not hungry till about, I haven't eaten yet. And it's almost eight o'clock. I'm still not hungry. So I won't be hungry till about nine, 10 o'clock mm -hmm. and, and my brain is still sharp as a tack. And yes. I, I love how that is. And I've always been curious the science behind that. So able to explain to those people that don't know what intermittent fasting is and what, and the benefits to it. Yeah. I mean, we can do a whole podcast on that, but let me just say <laughs> for the sake of time, intermittent fasting is exactly what it says. It's intermittent, which means sporadic, occasional fasting. So basically you take, you know, there are different versions of it, but the version I ascribe to is called TRF, time-restricted feeding, mm. which means you take the 24 hours in a day and you break it up into two windows, a feeding window and a fasting window. And you have to stick to the windows. Once you choose them, you have to be consistent. Consistency is key here. Yep. So let's say, for example, you decide, and this is a basic start, I'm going to do a 12-12 day, 12 hours of feeding, 12 hours of fasting. So you choose the time you want to start. Let's say I get up at six in the morning. I'm an early riser. Let's say I get up at six. Let's say I don't want to eat till eight. So I would begin my feeding window at 8 a.m. And because it's a 12-hour window, that means I would stop at 8 p.m. That's 12 hours. Mm -hmm. So I would eat all my meals and my snacks and what my beverages are in that 12-hour feeding window. Then at eight o'clock, all the way through the night, back to 8 a.m., I'm in my fasting window which means you're not eating anything. Now, in my program, you're allowed to have about 50 calories. That's it. No more than that. In liquids, not in solid foods. And the reason why you don't want to break the fast, which is what you'll do if you eat calories during the fast, you're breaking the fast, is because during the fast, the body is physiologically using fat to break it down 
and mobilize the energy that's being stored there and use it for energy. Mm -hmm. So the body has different sources of energy. The main source of energy in our body is what we eat. Mm. Food is energy. That's why they say, you know, it's calories. A calorie is a measurement of energy. Yeah. So no matter what you eat, by the way, whether it's, whether it's a cupcake or a steak, it has energy in it, right? Some energy is better than others, but it has energy, right? When you eat that energy, your body uses that to, to talk, to lift your arm, to wave. You need gas to do that, right? Now, what happens is if you stop eating and all the food that you ate, you've used that energy up, but your body always needs energy. Even while you're sleeping, it needs energy. Where are you going to go to get the energy? You're not eating anymore. Where do you get it from? You get it from your fat. Mm. Your body takes your fat. It breaks down your fat. It mobilizes your fat and uses it for energy. It's like a bear. Mm. You know, bears before hibernation, you know, they forage and gorge. They get fatter and fatter and fatter because they know that during the hard winter, number one, they're sleeping a lot. But number two, what they'll have to eat is going to be greatly diminished. And so they end up allowing themselves to stay active by eating their own fat. They break their fat down to use it for energy. That's what intermittent fasting is. Mm. I think it's like we could do our entire podcast. There's so many more questions yeah. revolving around it and same with diets and all that. That's always fascinated me. And I've got a lot of people that are always asking like what's the kind of diet that I'm on, how do I stay lean, how do I, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I don't, I'm no expert, you know, I, I don't ascribe to any one diet. I just eat <laughs> and, you know, eat well. You know, I used to, here's a quick story for you, doctor. I used to be anorexic. So mm. in 2017, 20, uh, I went from 72 kilos down to 53 kilos, 3% uh, wow. body fat. I was a stick. Uh, my bowel had completely almost destroyed itself. Um, so I had IBS, I had SIBO as well. I had all, all these issues and I was craving sugar. Like you would not believe. So what would happen is I'd eat something, my body wasn't getting enough nutrients because of the SIBO. And then I would be in absolute agony from both the IBS and the SIBO. And it wasn't, I ended up in hospital for nine days and then had to work through all that. Um, but after I, I got out of it, it took me about two years to fully heal. But after I changed my mentality and I was like, food's not bad. So why was I, I was eating like um, a one kilo bag of spinach a day. Uh, mm. There's like, wow. like chips. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Literally wrecked my bowel. Like I wouldn't eat any carbs, nothing. It was just wow. spinach. So nowadays I say to people, look, you've got to enjoy life. You've been, been given a gift. You've got food out there that is absolutely incredible. Eat in moderation, balance. You know, if you, if you struggle with balance, then that's something you need to work through. But don't, there's so many diets out there that you can choose from. Just choose one that works for you if you need mm. to be on a diet. But for the most mm. part, just enjoy life. Um, so I thought I'd, I'd share that a little bit. Um, yeah, no, you know, that's wonderful. And I think I just want to really quickly add to that and say that, listen, even though I have written all these diet books, my dream really would be that people would look at one of those books and be able not to need a book again and be able to just make better decisions. Mm. Because food is fun and great. And it's 
our fuel for life. And it's got to be a big pain in the neck to always have to worry about what you're eating, right? Mm. Like, I want people to have fun with food, but to be able to respect it and to appreciate it and to not abuse it. And so my goal is, I've always said, I don't mind you buying one of my books, but I want that to be just a blueprint for you. It's not a Bible, Mm. right? I didn't write a Bible. I wrote a blueprint. And I want you to be able to go and customize it. And then it becomes a lifestyle for you and not you always following a regimented plan. Because I just think that that's that's not fun all the time. Mm. Definitely not. Doctor, I have one last question for you. Sure. This is my legacy question that I love asking people at the end. So you've been able to reach the age of 100 and your friends have put together a film for you of everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how they got it. We'll just call it magic. And they've been able to show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? I want the film to show me walking across the stage at Harvard, me walking across the stage, getting my diploma and from med school, um, my kids and my family moments um, uh, as a family being together, um, a wife, all of us together. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to show my friends because friendship is so important to me. Um, at the end of the day, you, if you have nothing else, you have your family and your friends at the end of the day because everything else can be stripped from you. But family and friends will stick with you. Uh, but I also wanted to say that I was a guy who, at my, one of, at my um, rehearsal dinner before I got married, one of my best friends said this. He said, everyone thinks that Ian is lucky because he's had so many accomplishments. But what they don't get is that he's the hardest working guy in the room mm. and that he makes his own luck. And so even though you may say, oh, he's lucky, he got a show, he got all these books, he has this. He engineered it. Mm. And so I think that I want people to say that I was a hard worker, that I was a fair person, that I love life, that I love people, and that I respect the fact that I am just a small blip in the screen of the universe and that I have done something to make the world better and safer to leave it and to be enjoyed by generations behind me. What bothers me a lot now is I don't think we're taking care of the earth and we're not taking care of each other. And it's selfish because think about this. Look at all the great men and women before us who are now gone, right? So no matter how great you are, how famous you are, we all are going to have our expiration, at least here on earth. And so shouldn't we leave an earth in a better place so generations behind us can enjoy it too? So there's a big part of me wanting to be selfless um, and to have something that remains a legacy that remains transgenerationally. Mm. I love that. And I feel like that's a perfect way to sort of end that conversation. I could talk to you for ages because I got so many more questions. We definitely got to do this again, please. Uh, but Dr. Ian Smith, thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast and sharing your stories uh, with us. Thank you. Yeah, I love people. If they want to reach out to me, uh, they can email me. I do challenges every month, weight loss challenges online. So my email is the bounce back challenge, the bounce back challenge at gmail.com. And Instagram is at Dr. Ian Smith. Spell the doctor out. Ian Smith on Twitter, Dr. Ian Smith. And my website is DrIanSmith.com. Spell the doctor. I'll make sure that's all in the show notes below so people know how to find you and, and ask questions and do the challenges. 
But once again, thank you so much, Doctor. It's been an absolute pleasure and an absolute delight. Thank you. Let's do it again. Hey, be safe out there, okay? I don't like this part because it means that sadly, we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it will go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.